This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. A co-production of WNYC Studios and the New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The rift inside the Democratic Party now over Israel and its campaign in Gaza is profound. And this week on our podcast, The Political Scene, Andrew Morantz talks about Israel and the left and how the divide may be impacting the presidential race. Andrew Morantz joins host Tyler Foggett on The Political Scene, a podcast from The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Emerald Fennell was an accomplished actor before making her debut as a writer and director with Promising Young Woman. Fennell's second movie comes out this month, and she sat down to talk about it with Michael Schulman, who covers culture and entertainment for The New Yorker. Here's Michael. You might know Emerald Fennell for her acting work. She played Camilla Parker Bowles on the middle seasons of The Crown. Uh, I actually couldn't talk to her about any of her acting because of the SAG strike. But she has emerged in recent years as a really provocative, hot-button-pushing filmmaker. Uh, Her first movie, Promising Young Woman, came out in 2020, and it was just a movie that people loved to argue over. It was a feminist revenge thriller, And chances are, if you saw it, you either loved it or hated it. But she won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. So now she's back with her second film, Saltburn. It draws on the Evelyn Waugh novel uh, Brideshead Revisited, and it follows a middle-class Oxford student, played by Barry Keoghan, who falls in with a handsome aristocratic classmate, played by Jacob Elordi. And so the Barry Keoghan character goes to spend the summer with this guy's family at their luxurious country estate, uh, also called Saltburn, and more or less infiltrates their lives. Emerald Fennell does not do things halfway. She really goes dark. She's not a crowd pleaser. And I have a feeling that Saltburn is going to get people talking just as Promising a Woman did. I imagine that it was really important not only just to cast the actors, but to cast the house of Saltburn, um, you found this place uh, that dates back to the 14th century. Can you um, tell me how you found it, how you chose it? It was really important to me. And it's funny that you say casting because it absolutely did feel exactly as important it is a character. And me and Linus, the wonderful cinematographer, talked a lot about shooting the house as a sex object, as a kind of fetish. Mm. You know, we're always sliding up and down staircases and it's, you know, it's sort of part of the like erotic texture of the film, really, the house. And so many of these houses have been in, you know, because we're so successful at exporting the aristocracy abroad. So we've seen them all, you know, we've seen Gosford Park and we've seen The Remains of the Day and we've seen 
Downton Abbey. Right. And all of those are within a certain, usually within a certain kind of area of shooting near London. So we knew we'd have to go much further out to find it. And then, you know, part of it we shot because of all of the oneers and, and the, the, the way I like to work, it, it had to be one place. But it also meant we all became immune to the beauty immediately. And you right. need that feeling, right? Of like, oh, oh. You're just walking through it. And after a couple of weeks, you're like, oh, it's so big. How am I getting from it? To be? You know, it's no longer the most beautiful, overwhelming thing you've ever seen. It's suddenly just another thing. Well, but that's the point is that the people yeah. who live there could care less. They're so used to their lives of luxury. This movie is a such a vicious satire of the kind of idle rich. Is that how you see it? And what interested you in sort of observing this sliver of, of aristocracy? Yes, it's absolutely a satire. But it's also a satire of those of us who want in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually, it's not just, it's not just, of course, you know, the, the absurdities of the class system and, you know, which I'm you know, very much like a part of as every single person in England is. But really, it's about our willingness to prostrate ourselves at the altar of beauty and wealth, always, and our longing for it. And even when we know better, even when we know that it's not good for us, even though we know that it's never going to love us back, that it's, that these systems are just like in place to make us feel ugly and stupid and boring and you know whatever right. we're still that we're still on our knees we all of us are and so and so yes absolutely it's a class satire but the thing for me that i wanted it to feel more like is about what are we what is our relationship with the things we want why do we hate them so much why do we hate them as much as we love them mm. why do men look at beautiful women on the internet and because they're so aroused by them they want to strangle them where is that impulse from? You know, what wh- what is this constant sort of voyeurism and need and want and endless wanting, wanting and looking? What does it do? Hmm. And so, yes, I hope absolutely it's like a comedy of manners and a and a social setup. But I but I'm interested in like being a human inside of all of this and what motivates us and the British class system and the house and it's, it's all really you know it could be any number of things that we are pressing our faces against, I guess. Well, I'm curious how you drew on your own life and background in satirizing or anatomizing the British class system. In this movie, you're not someone who's coming from the wrong side of the tracks and, you know, peering through the windows like Oliver is. You uh, seem to grow up in a, a very rarefied setting. Your your father, Theo Fennell, is, is known as the jeweler to the stars, the, the king of bling. And, um, uh, you know, you went to the same boarding schools, uh, Kate Middleton, and then to Oxford. I, I kind of just curious, like with your father, you know, the people he he supplies jewelry for have included Madonna, Elton John, who's a family friend. Growing up, how did you sort of process this rarefied world you were living in. But this is so interesting because this is all about the intricacies of the class system because I would say, what I would say is, oh, that's very much pressing your nose against the window because actually the the the, the psychotic detail of the class system means that actually, I mean, do you think you're thought of as being very, very, very posh if your father is known as the king of bling, you know, (laughs) do you know what I mean? So suddenly, yes, of course, but this is what's fascinating is that yes, by any standards, my life has been absurd, like an absurd 
parade of <laughs> mad privilege, of course. I mean, and I'm very aware of that. But also on the other side of things, my parents both, you know, my father's was, uh, his family were in the army. My mother's family, um, you know, ran a farm, were farmers in, in rural Wales. And they both, you know, they both went to London to make themselves and they both worked and worked and worked. You know, I, I suppose everyone in my family would just, we're pretty, you know, a bit flashy, some would say, and certainly in in Britain, that would be that would be a real slam. You know, there's a kind of. I see of, what you mean. A, this a, is a very resist. different from America, where uh, you know wealth is flash. Well, I, I think, but everywhere again, it's just about where this again. It's like it's all about learning the rules, and so you know, for me, for me too, I had to learn those rules. But if you are a writer. Or if you are a maker of things, I guess you're a voyeur and you're a watcher, and you're interested in detail and you're interested in how people communicate with each other. You're interested in how you transform yourself to make yourself more palatable to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, all of these things are true. Yes, I'm, you know, from a very kind of, you know grew up in very rarefied circumstances but also there are places where that wouldn't be the that that wouldn't be the case at all you know there are you know I went I went to Oxford and there yes there are there are lots of different subdivisions there too there are, you're divided up constantly into your tiny little slither well it's funny you mentioned Oxford you know Saltburn begins at Oxford where these two students befriend each other from across this uh, class divide. And I'm curious if there were things from your own experience there that you directly drew for the movie or or maybe more thematic things that found their way in. Well, I think I did probably what a thousand people who go to Oxford did, which was I wanted to be a kind of loose, chain-smoking, sexy genius <laughs> having affairs with my tutors and and of course it was just not <laughs> I mean I, I I've always felt like a profoundly unserious person and so it was very important to me to go to a place that at least would I could at least point to so that people might want to take me seriously even if they even if they didn't but right but I you know I think I I think I just I don't know. I don't know what I was looking for quite, but and but it's also just a time of your life where you can be anything. And I don't think that lying is I don't think of myself as a liar at all. I hope I'm very honest. But that's what a liar would say. <laughs> well, and, I imagine you didn't lead with people saying, Hey, my father's the king of bling. I mean I, maybe I did, though. Maybe you did. Maybe to be with certain people, that's right. probably what I did do. And you were acting during this time, right? Did yeah. you think of yourself as 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 uh, someone who wanted to be a director someday, or were you primarily focused on being an actress? No, I think I I was I was writing a lot. I did an English degree, and and I think actually it was really interesting. I met Marielle Heller for the first time yesterday, hmm. the amazing director, and she said something that really struck me, which was that. The only visible job for a woman on a on a film or a TV set was was an actor, and I felt that very strongly because I think that is probably the truth for me too. Is that now I know that this is the only thing I ever wanted to do, but I didn't know that it existed. I suppose that acting was the thing that I, because we don't really have film schools in the same way in England as you do here, um, 
and I didn't really, and there weren't any female directors at the time. I mean, of course, there are lots at the time, but I mean, just in terms of just sheer volume, there wasn't anyone that I could, I mean, I looked up to all of the like female comedians who wrote their own things. I looked up to kind of Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French and, mm. and people like that. And, but I suppose that acting, I love acting, whether or not I'm particularly good at it, I, I don't really know. But I think that I wanted to write and I wanted to make things. I wanted to make the stuff that I thought about. Well, um, you know, both of your films, Promising a Woman and Saltburn, uh, I would describe as darkly perverse, which is a compliment. Uh, I, they start dark and they get even darker. Um, were you always like that? Yeah, I think so. There are a lot of calls to my parents to, you know, to come and have a talk about a piece of creative writing I'd done when I was in, you know, primary school. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm, I think that I want to, I want to push, I want to push something. I want to press something and I want, and I, and I want to talk to people. I don't know. I want, I want to talk about things and I don't know how else to talk about them. And it's interesting when you make a film, particularly a film like Promising a Woman, people expect you to have an answer always. Mm -hmm. And I don't have one. And it's the same with, you know, it's the same with, with Saltburn. But it's interesting. I think it is also interesting that actually a lot of it is sort of just the work of imagination, which is something that, you know, maybe we, we talk less about like in interviews maybe than the like real life things that inspire inspire it. But I just, yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I'm interested in like why we all love popping zits and why people watch it on the internet and what that squeamish pleasure is. Emerald Fennell talking with Michael Shulman about her new film, Saltburn. The conversation continues in a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. 
Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Michael Shulman is a staff writer covering arts and entertainment for the New Yorker, and he's speaking today with the writer, director, and actor, Emerald Fennell. Fennell made the 2020 film Promising Young Woman. It starred Carrie Mulligan. And it was one of those movies, it seemed like everybody was talking about it and not without some controversy. We'll continue that conversation now. Well, this would be a good time. So I don't want to spoil anything about Saltburn. Obviously, people haven't, in general, seen it yet. But maybe this would be a good time to talk about the ending of Promising Young Woman. If people, you know, people have had three years. Yeah, but get spo- on with it, guys. Spoiler alert, in three, two, one, uh, your heroine, Cassie, played by Carrie Mulligan, is on a quest to sort of avenge her best friend's rape. And instead of carrying out this revenge in in the way that the audience might be rooting for, she finally gets the rapist cornered and he frees himself and smothers her with a pillow and she has a kind of final victory from beyond the grave. This was a really divisive, polarizing argument starting ending. And I'm curious, how did what effect did you want it to have on the audience? Did you think about that? Uh- yeah, of course. I mean, of course. It, 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 if I, I think for me, it was the the purpose of the film was not just to kind of examine the very recent past where all of the nice people that I knew did all of the things in this film. And so in many ways, that scene where Cassie dies, which was in real time, you know, so I, so I found out how long it would take for somebody to be suffocated to death. And the, the answer was about two and a half minutes. So it's two and a half minutes shot pushing in excruciating it's excruciating and it ends on him you know it ends on he then becomes our protagonist her murderer Hmm. and it's not just that scene that's very important in the film but it's the scene after where his best man comes in and it's the most broadly comic it's the most broadly comic scene of the whole film (laughs) she's dead joe come on i'm not kidding (laughs) <laughs> All right, I, you're being ironic. What? You killed the stripper at your bachelor party? Was this the 90s? Oh, classic. <laughs> and we're all laughing because we've seen it. We're all laughing because we've seen it and we know it. And that was always part of it for me is to, is just, you know, to really talk about how we get, how we get catharsis and how we and 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 you know to 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 try and explain to people that it's no use saying why didn't you why didn't you why didn't you mm-hmm. because this is the answer there's no you can't there's you know the winning is relentless and excruciating and and often feels very futile well it really complicates the relationship the the audience's relationship with our 
protagonist in a way that I think Saltburn does in a, a, a different but related way, which is that you know our instinct is to root for this person whose story we're seeing, mm. who it seems like someone uh, somewhat of an underdog. Mm. Uh, I, I think that the people who recoiled at that end of promising a woman felt like, wait a second, I was. Uh, is this supposed to be a victory for her? Because I don't feel like it is. I felt personally like it's okay. I'm. I'm. A, I understand that I'm supposed to feel queasy and maybe even question her self-destructive instinct, which may be something like a, a death wish, or there's something kind of psychopathic about but her. Do we question that when it's John Wick getting revenge on his puppy? Do we say why is he putting himself in these dangerous positions? Do we do it when men go on revenge quests and die heroically at the end? We don't, because it looks different. And, you know, there was a lot of there were a lot of conversations at the time about the kind of, you know, the relationship of the cops to her and the fact that they kind of arrest him at the end. And and it's so it's sort of fascinating because the cop the the male and and female, but mostly the male policeman in this is the most useless, misogynistic person he goes and interviews Bo's character who's a kind of children's doctor and is completely overwhelmed by him and I mean you know Bo was directed to give the most Bo Burnham sorry Bo Burnham who plays Dr. Ryan who's Cassie's love interest the ultimate nice seeming decent guy who turns out to be yet another yeah disappointing schmuck yeah (laughs) so but but he was directed in that in that scene to be as shifty (laughs) And guilty seeming as possible. Yeah. And the policeman is like, just get feeding him all the information to free himself. Between you and me, it uh, sounded like she wasn't feeling so good. Mentally, I mean. Her father seemed to think she was a little unstable. Yeah, she was not in a good place. Do you think she might have wanted to hurt herself? Uh, she could have. She could have, yeah. I thought that might be the case. Thank you for your honesty. Also, we don't see the court case probably gets off, you know, scot-free. Well, that's what some people argued yeah, well, as, it's, as a it's, criticism. How is this a victory if he's just going to get off on self-defense? Well, but it's not a victory. There is no victory. That's the point of the film. There is no victory to be had. But also when you're making a film like this, you also have to, you kind of have to acknowledge that for it to for it to hit widely you can't be so you can't be so nihilistic that that you know because the original ending did end with not just not just um the best man and the kind of perpetrator burning her body but everyone from the part everyone from the bachelor party standing around the mountains and that was the end and you know the, the initial argument was that was just too bleak that actually it would be impossible for people to engage with it. They'd be they'd be too annoyed. And of course- and Who was they, making this argument? You know, the the usual people, lovely, well-meaning, honest people who I like work with. Producers, studio Yeah, heads, like all of those thing. people. And I, and I, of course, initially my first thing, like any person was, you're fucking idiots and you hate art and you hate <laughs> women and I hope you all die slowly and tonight. Um, <laughs> well, and, I'm sure there were people who felt that even your final ending was- unbearably bleak and yeah, why can't we just totally. end with the bang but, but that was the thing is that actually with her with her yeah, glorious with her victory yeah. but this is the thing this is the thing you know is that actually they were right they were right 
It reminds me of uh, Fatal Attraction, which which mm. famously had a reshot ending. You know, it was it was originally it originally ended with the Glenn Close character slitting her throat in the bathroom alone, and this was so horrifying to the studios basically that they came and reshot it with you know the the wife character like shooting her in the head and sort of protecting the family and the you know the sort of uh, stalker evil chaos causing woman is sort of cast out like a like a monster but that's like those are the hollywood rules which well, you sort of undermined well, with your ending thank you but i think also that's it you have to also operate within those rules because you also want the most people to watch something and engage with it i think the thing that i'm coming to terms with is that as a f- i think perhaps as a female filmmaker more than any other kind you're expect you are sort of still expected to be maybe a memoirist. People are more comfortable with that still. And so I found the personal the the fact that I was always such an intrinsic part of the work mm. difficult because actually, even though, you know, because of the actor strike and all these sorts of things, I'm sort of here talking about these things, I would r- really rather it existed without me, that people were able to look at it without me. Um, and so I found that difficult because I I, um, I think I, you hope the thing speaks for itself, but you also don't, you know, me and Carrie were at a point with Promise Young Woman where we were constantly being asked about our personal relationship to the material and really quite kind of openly, frankly, being asked in what manner we'd been sexually assaulted and could we please detail it in lovely graphic detail to the man who just introduced himself to us via Zoom. You know, it was kind of <laughs> oh, gosh. bleak. And and um, and I think that that stuff is the stuff that I always will find difficult because it's necessary. But I but I also feel like the, I you know, you hope, you, you know, you, you sort of want to step away from it a little bit yourself. For sure. I mean, so much of the press around Promising Woman had to do with you as a specifically female storyteller showing a female point of view and how women experience issues like consent and sex and harassment so much differently than men, just like a different universe. Um, Saltburn really is about men primarily. You know, the central relationship is between these two men. Um did that interest you, like exploring male friendship? Male friendship is a really excellent way of describing the things that happen here. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> insufficient to this relationship in the movie. Big but... wink. Um, <laughs> male ways of relating to each other. I guess. Well, again, you know, perhaps in 2006 as well, even more than now, there feel like more barriers between male friendship physically so le- less now than but but you know with with all my female friendships are very tactile you're often entwined together for example certainly growing up at that age you know when you're a young woman you often change in front of your friends you're often in the bath in front of your friends you're often talking mm. about masturbating you're often you have intimate relationships that are kind of maybe a bit different certainly again during the period that this was in and so you know i suppose that this film about a kind of bottomless well of desire that can't ever be sated kind of felt uniquely male. But I, but again, you know, that's just me 
honestly pulling something out of my ass because you asked me. <laughs> I think truthfully, it just was. Right. And I'm interested in and I'm interested in men and boys as much as I am in women and girls, you know. We're all in it. A couple of years ago it was announced that you were uh making a film about the character Zatanna for DC Comics, and you've also been attached to a Nemesis movie at Marvel. First of all, I'm curious, are those still happening? Are no. they still in the works? No, no, those aren't in the works. So so Nemesis was, I think that was a few years ago, and that was um just um that wasn't anything I was ever like formally attached to, mm-hmm. but did some some work on early on. And it was one of those things that interested me because I again I like genre. And so and I don't and I'm not I wasn't at the time hugely familiar with the superhero genre actually. And I thought, well, this would be interesting if I could if, you know, if I could make a film that would appeal to me, maybe, and people like me, which is, you know, maybe people who don't wouldn't traditionally go and see those films then that felt like a really fun exercise. But I think that the truth of it is, is I'm, I am much, much, much better on my own. The development process, the traditional development process is one that um, I've, I've done in the past for lots of reasons. And it's, and I, and I do love collaborating with people, but it's not, it doesn't work for me. I can't do outlines, can't Hmm. have endless conversations about ideas before writing. For me, I I can't write anything down until it's finished because once it's down, it's sort of, it feels complete, not entirely. You always have to change things a little bit, but it's sort of a secret. It has to be a secret. And if you're going to be really honest with yourself and you're going to write the things that you find really troubling and interesting and sexy and difficult, you kind of can't, you need to sort of work it out Mm -hmm. in your head alone. So are you at all interested in doing like a superhero or franchise movie or is this sort of corporate mechanism around it where you have to outline things just the the barrier of entry at this point yeah i think so and and i i I honestly don't know is the answer like certainly for the next few films if i'm allowed to make them i i already know what they're going to be of my own and that's you know i've got two small kids like i can't i i can only ever do one thing at a time so i do one thing at a time and so at least for a few years again if i'm not you know if i'm if i'm allowed to I'll, i'll just make my own things but you know you never know. Doing something, you know, doing something that's difficult or that seems counterintuitive is always something that appeals, but but certainly not for a while. Well, Emerald, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> the New Yorker's Michael Shulman spoke with writer, director, and actor Emerald Fennell. Her film Saltburn comes out on the 17th. You can find much more from Michael Shulman at newyorker.com. He just profiled director Ridley Scott, looking at his new historical epic, Napoleon. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for listening to the show this week. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund.
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.